Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. By now, you're probably familiar with the incident that occurred last weekend at the Cincinnati Zoo. A three-year-old child fell into a gorilla enclosure, forcing zoo officials to shoot and kill Harambe, a silverback gorilla that had been dragging the child around. Most of the discussion surrounding this event has been about the fault of the parent for letting their child fall into the exhibit and whether killing Harambe was the only option left to the officials. But there's another side to this story, though. The gorillas. Joining us today to discuss primate behavior and zoos in general is Dr. Bob Wheelersburg, a professor of anthropology at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Wheelersburg, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, 1 800 729 7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Just let me tell you right up front that we are not debating who's at fault here. That's not what we're discussing. Uh, but uh, we want to learn something about uh, this animal. Uh, the species, primates in general, and uh, I think this is a good place to do it. But uh, Dr. Wheelersburg, before we start, uh, just read your title of Professor of Anthropology. Uh, why an anthropologist is studying primates? We may have a lot of audience members wondering that question. Well, um, actually, of course, this is not my primary research uh, area. I'm more of a cultural anthropologist. But being at a small school like Elizabethtown, I've taught uh, human evolution for 20 years, and that's where primates come to play. Uh, anthropologists don't study elephants or uh, uh, mammals of, of other types, uh, whales, etc., even though they're very intelligent. Uh, they study primates, and the reason they study primates is to try and learn more about human evolution and our ancestors, our hypothetical ancestors, the Australopithecines. Uh, we've heard of Lucy, I think. Mm -hmm. She's an Australopithecine. And when, Tell our audience who Lucy is. Well, Lucy uh, was discovered by Donald Johansson um, and is uh, supposedly revolutionized uh, back in the 70s, early 80s, the human evolutionary tree. And so um, she is a hominid, which means a bipedal ape, just like humans are. And Australopithecus uh, is a genus just like Homo is a genus. So when Lewis Leakey started pulling these Australopithecines out of Old Divide Gorge, he said, we need to look at a type of animal that might represent what these early hominids, the Australopithecines, looked like, uh, how they behaved, their intelligence, etc. So he formed what was now, what's now called the trimate group, three female um, in fact, they weren't really professionals at the time. Jane Goodall, who he sent off to study uh, chimps. They're also apes. And Diane Fossey, who we may know the movie, uh, Sigourney Weaver, uh, to study gorillas, mountain gorillas. And then an, a lesser-known woman to go study orangutans. And all of those are what are called the great apes, our closest relative. And the idea was, let's look and see how a, an ape deals with other apes in a social environment, but also in a pre-speech environment. They have vocalization, but of course they don't have speech, even though Coco the gorilla has learned over a thousand uh, signs, American Sign Language. So let's see how a non-speaking ape interacts with each other, and uh, we've learned quite a bit uh, from them. But you did, uh, you, you still do, I assume, teach uh, primatology. Oh, yes. Uh, well, human evolution, and uh, one-third of that approximately is uh, primatology. What is primatology? Primatology is nothing more than the study of uh, primates, and primates, there are essentially three basic categories. There are the very primitive ones called prosimians. Uh, if you've had a child and watched Leaping Lemurs or Zaboomafoo, that's a prosimian. 
they're a primate. Uh, Galago or bush baby is also a primate, uh, a prosimian, but they're very, very primitive. Uh, and many of them are nocturnal. So we're looking at things like visual acuity, the, how the eyesight works, etc. The second group, of course, the monkeys. And uh, you have everything from very small monkeys. The New World monkeys uh, usually have a tail and some other different uh, anatomical features. They are f- more primitive than the Old World monkeys, the African monkeys, like baboons. So that's the second category of primates. And the third is uh, the ape category. Now, there are two types of apes, uh, the greater apes and the lesser apes. The lesser apes mostly are from Asia, and that would be gibbons and samangs, and they live almost exclusively in the trees. They are almost strictly arboreal. Orangutan is also an Asian ape who lives in the trees, but it's a great considered a great ape. And then the African apes would be the chimps, including the pygmy chimps or bonobos, and then gorillas, of which there are two basic species. That would be the mountain gorilla, the gorilla gorilla beringia, and uh, the lowland gorilla, gorilla gorilla gorilla. <laughs> no Magilla gorilla, though, unfortunately. <laughs> All right. Now, when you, uh, we, were, we were talking ahead of time, and uh, I mentioned that on our website we have a photograph of a silverback gorilla, which Harambe uh, was a silverback gorilla. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is not Harambe, the photograph, and that's why I was sure to uh, caption that. That is a silverback gorilla. And you were saying something to me that uh, during this whole debate I have not heard anyone say, and that is that silverback is just a male adult gorilla. That's right. A silverback means nothing more than an adult male gorilla. Um, Usually about 14 or so, they start developing this uh, silver uh, hair on their back, kind of like you and I look, Scott, uh, with gray hair. I don't Uh, have gray hair on my back. I'm telling you (laughs) now. (laughs) (laughs) But no, it's, uh, it's a sign to basically everybody else, stay away. Because nobody challenges a silverback except for another silverback. Females don't. Uh, let's remember there's an incredible sexual dimorphism among these animals. The males are often twice as big as the females. And so they rule their groups unquestioned, except by another silverback who wants to take over that group or a maturing blackback um, before they get the silver. So uh, it's nothing more. A silverback is not a type of gorilla. It's a male adult, fully adult gorilla. You mentioned to me also that even father and son, that the father silverback gorilla will basically kick the the son uh, out of, I, I don't know. Out of... They're called troops. troops or, okay. uh, some people even refer to them as a harem because typically one silverback will have four female, uh, two to four females uh, that he uh, breeds with, and then they're infants. So, you know, when you look for an evolutionary explanation, uh, you have to say that the, the father is kicking the son out so he won't breed with his uh, own mother. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But they basically kicked them out. And that's what happened with Harambi back when he was 14. He was in a zoo in Texas. I can't remember the name of it now. But uh, his father, the silverback, basically was forcing him out of the group. And so he was sent to Cincinnati where there were two females, adult females, that they were hoping he would breed with and form basically a, a small group. 
Mm. Or two. All right, so let's talk about the situation in Cincinnati. The child fell into the compound. The video that has been widespread showed Harambe uh, seeming curious at first, mm -hmm. but then uh, picking the child up and pulling him through water. Harambe was shot and killed. The decision was made that, that uh, the child's life was in danger and that uh, they had to uh, shoot Harambe and kill him. Uh, there have been many opinions expressed since then, since this happened last weekend. And we're not here, as I mentioned, to argue who was at fault. But what did you see? Well, as I uh, said uh, a few minutes ago before we came on the air, there apparently is new video out. Uh, and I'm sure the Cincinnati Zoo has video that's not yet been released. There will be a uh, press conference from the Hamilton County, Ohio, which is where Cincinnati is today, this afternoon, about whether to charge the parents. Um, so the new video actually shows uh, the gorilla taking him to another part of the enclosure because apparently the crowd was agitated and perhaps uh, scaring him. I have not seen any indication that that gorilla was anything but protective of uh, the boy. Now. This is what happens um, when you, uh, zoo officials or captive uh, primate tenders call it enrichment. So every once in a while, sometimes for the audience's benefit, um, they will throw something into an enclosure, a uh, gorilla enclosure or other primates, like a football or something like that, so that they can, uh, something new and novel. Sometimes it's fruit, and because uh, they love fruit, and they will play with it, the females, the infants, until the male comes. And I tell my students, it's kind of like dad at home when he's home from work and wants the chair, the easy chair, and the remote, you give it to him. <laughs> so that's what's happened. And in the past, um, something like this where maybe it's a purse or somebody drops something, it's a not, not a human or a life-threatening situation, what zoo officials will do is the keepers will throw uh, something novel in or bring fruit in or something like that, pineapples, uh, watermelon, and uh, try to get that object away from the gorilla either before they destroy it or harm themselves. Uh, feeding from the crowd, as you know, at zoos is highly looked down upon because of disease and nutritional stuff. So there are those that are speculating that the keepers could have tried. He was there 10 minutes. That's a long time. And uh, they could have tried some sort of uh, bribe to get him away, a non-threatening bribe. And they may have done that. And as you know, there were two other incidents where children fell into gorilla enclosures. One that's maybe more uh, known, more well-known, is in Chicago, where uh, a boy fell in, hit his head, I guess, and became unconscious, and a female gorilla actually picked him up, it must not have been a silverback around, and carried him away from the other gorillas until a zookeeper came and got him. I just read about an incident in Jersey, England, uh, where a boy fell in and a male protected him for, oh, I don't know, several minutes until the zookeepers could come and bribe him away. So, boy, this is a tough call. But 10 minutes is a long time. And two events had just happened. As we know, Harambe's birthday was on the 17th, the day before, I believe. Or not the 17th, but he turned 17 the day before he was shot. But the zoo emergency reaction team had just completed tabletop exercises about what to do in such an event. So they were really trained up, and, you know, I worked at FEMA as an Army officer for five years, and sometimes you get a little uh, forward-leaning, and I'm not sure that's maybe what happened here, but 
I don't think you can find fault with the Sioux. But what did you see in Harambe that, in his behavior that said to you that he's protecting that child? Well, protecting the child, you know, this is a Disney sort of thing where you anthropomorphize behavior, uh, make it human-like. He may not have been protecting it as much as he was saying, this is mine. Whatever it is, I'll figure it out, but this is mine. Uh, but he may have been protecting because for 17 years, people have been watching him. But guess what? He's been watching humans for 17 years. And anybody that's been to the gorilla enclosure at a zoo has seen as a, a gorilla charge the, the, uh, the glass or whatever and watch the kids, uh, you know, uh, jump away and scream, etc. I believe he knew it was a child, not a, I mean a child, but, you know, a, a, not an adult uh, human. And again, um, unfortunately, I'm a Bengals fan and a Reds fan. And if you'd have taken defensive tackle, Bengals defensive tackle, Geno Atkins at six foot and uh, about 320, put him in a black Bengal uniform without the pads or the helmet and dropped him in and had him uh, charge Harambe, I think it would have been a very different outcome. So what you're saying is that that Harambe obviously knew the difference you just said and knew the difference it knew as a child but an adult would have been a different story and different yes. outcome uh, I I think so that would be my hypothesis that we could test Scott if you can convince Geno Atkins to uh, do <laughs> that we do could that. certainly try it <laughs> <laughs> but uh, so why would that be that that, that the gorilla I mean because you just similar said similar size Okay. For one thing, but still, I mean, you, you just said that they they observed, mm -hmm. and they, he he might have perceived it as a ba a black back, uh, a threat, another male. I mean, it would have been a very puzzling situation for them. I'm sure. I've heard uh, a, a story that maybe the father tried to to go into the enclosure. That would have probably been a bad idea, in my opinion, because it might have enraged Harambe. Give us a sense of how strong this animal is. Oh, it, there's, you know, there's no, uh, again, you take a human of similar size, six foot, uh, 350 pounds, maybe bench presses four or 500 pounds, the gorilla would rip them to shreds. There's just no comparison. Again, these animals are as strong in their arms as as in their legs because they are arboreal. They, they can climb trees. They don't like to live in trees or live in trees because they're so big. But infants, uh, a young infant, you know, can climb up to the top of a tree just like that to get fruit or something. And uh, they are incredibly strong. Uh, you know, the, the saying is uh, that human legs are four times, the muscles are four times stronger than our arms. Um, here it's a little bit uh, more equal, and they would just rip you to shreds. Now, the gorillas have a, an interesting way of walking. They, it's called knuckle walking. So that's when you see them bent over. They're not really quadrupeds. They're not, they're, their hands are not open. Uh, they're using their knuckles. But they have hands. They don't have paws. That's one of the things that primates have is they have a nail, the nails instead of claws, and actual fingerprints. So he would have ripped, uh, he could have ripped that child to shreds mm -hmm. easily. You know, the video, and you say there's another video out today, but the, the video that we've seen so many times on TV, it's 30 seconds. Yes. And it looks like he's pulling up the child by where his belt would be. I don't know mm -hmm. if he actually had a belt on or not. I don't either. But from behind, he was like pulling up, uh, you know, the child by the by the back. You know, the one thing that I, as, as far as, yeah, there was real potential for him to physically tear that child apart. Mm -hmm. if you wanted. But the other danger was he was dragging the, the, the child through the water. Right. Could have drowned. 
mm-hmm. may have hit the child's head on, on something the right sure. on the wall, could have killed him that way. So, yes, easily. as you said, the zoo the officials, I just can't imagine how quickly they had to make that decision and how quickly they had to weigh their options. There. Well, 10 minutes is not that quick, but I think they knew what was going on because gorilla infants are very rambunctious. They play hard, and in fact, uh, just like uh, a father, a human father saying, uh, I'll pull this car over, one of the things that uh, silverback gorillas do is control their own infants and keep them from playing too hard, keep the females in the troop from fighting with each other. The one point that's important to understand here is that when a silverback fights another silverback for control of his harem and his infants, he is fighting for the life of those infants. Because if he is displaced, killed, or run off, that new silverback will commit commit infanticide on those other infants, kill them all brutally, uh, so that the females begin to ovulate again and he can breed with them. Again, it's an evolutionary explanation. Why would you take care of somebody else's genes? So they do commit infanticide, and that's why a, black, a silverback will fight so hard to protect his uh, harem, his females, and his infants. So he could have killed that infant right away. You said uh, that, the, the, that Harambe has been observing humans his entire life while he was in a zoo. How intelligent are these gorillas? I'm not sure anybody really knows uh, because, of course, they can't respond. There are a couple um, ways that uh, intelligence is measured in the great apes, uh, those being um, learning sign language and what are called mirror studies. Sign language, chimps have learned lots of signs, uh, thousands, I guess, and they teach uh, their offspring signs. Gorillas, the most I think is Coco, who learned over a thousand signs, so they can learn it. Uh, orangutans, the Washington Zoo, I know had a project where they they really weren't signing because they don't have real hands. They're called four-handed, but they're more for grasping tree branches and that sort of thing. So they have a, a dexterity problem. So they use a computer to to learn their signs. I think they've learned 20 or so. So there is a a gradation between the great apes in how intelligent they are as measured by learning sign language. Mirror studies are perhaps even more interesting because humans are able to look at uh, themselves in a mirror at a very young age and realize it's them. Chimps also, adult chimps, can look at a mirror and see, recognize that it's themselves. And there are plenty of studies where you see a chimp exploring parts of its body that it can't see without the mirror when it looks in a mirror. Gorillas are really marginal, and I, I actually tried to find a study that says that they are self-aware in mirrors, and I could not. And I don't think orangutans are either. Uh, monkeys are not. A rhesus monkey, for example, will never learn that it's his image and will always try to fight it. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Our our, uh, guest during this segment of the program is Dr. Bob Wheelersburg, a professor of anthropology at Elizabethtown College. We're talking about uh, primates, talking about gorillas, apes, uh, and uh, yes, it is in response to uh, the incident at the Cincinnati Zoo last weekend, but uh, our interest is not in who was at fault in that case, but uh, learning about the behavior, learning about uh, the, the great apes themselves. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Also on WITF Facebook page, you can leave a question or a comment. 1-800-729-7532. Now, this is a wild animal. 
but one that has been a zoo fed by humans for years. How is this different, Harambe? How is Harambe, or how was he different from a silverback gorilla living in the wild? Well, first off would be the range uh, of um, area that they live in. Now, I will say that the two types of, of gorillas, the mountain gorilla and the lowland gorilla, Harambe was a lowland gorilla. Most of what is known about gorillas is known by the study of mountain gorillas, uh, even though they represent a much smaller number. Um, I think the lowland gorilla population in the wild is 175,000. Now, their uh, range would be between about three-quarters of a square mile and 16 square miles. So, you know, I'm not sure that if this had happened in the wild, if he would have stayed inside of the humans or if he would have maybe climbed a tree or something with his, you know, whatever he felt he had. Uh, but I'm not sure how you could how you could uh, ever answer that question because it's not a study that anybody's going to duplicate. I think there are about 765 gorillas in zoos worldwide, and as far as I can tell, there's only been three cases where somebody accidentally fell in, and it all, they've all been ch children, and in every case they've been protected. So I don't know what the uh, situation would have been in a wild, uh, but it it. Um, it may have been that he fled or went uh, farther away where he couldn't be seen. You studied at the University of Cincinnati and at this particular zoo for a mm -hmm. few weeks. Now, it's been 30-plus years. Yes. But tell us about the zoo. Well, the zoo, I also, uh, because of my sports uh, fanaticism, I read the Cincinnati paper online every day. The zoo gets a lot of coverage. It has a lot of, uh, of uh, backers. Um, this enclosure has been there for 38 years, so it actually was there when I was there, and I was studying a, a prosimian, but I did go by the gorilla cage uh, enclosure several times. So it, this is the first incident in 38 years. Um, they have an international reputation. Um, they contribute, uh, and if you look at their website today, they contribute to this Mbeli um, uh, uh, Bali study in the Congo of lowland gorillas. Uh, I think they have uh, six lowland gorillas still uh, after Harambe was killed. Uh, so they have a very good zoo. And, um, you know, it, I think it's uh, high quality and it stresses education more than entertainment, in my opinion, which is a tough thing to do when you're dealing with children taking them to the zoo. Now, you brought up a good point here, something I want to get into. You take students in your classes mm -hmm. to zoos every year. Uh, most of the time, Philadelphia mm -hmm. and, and, and Washington. What do you look for? Well, um, they usually, uh, the students have to do a paper in, in this class um, each semester. I haven't taught it for a few years, but uh, they do a paper on primates. Uh, I find students really, of all the topics we look at, uh, human evolution, evolution courses are divided into three parts, human genetics, uh, the paleoanthropology, the search for Lucy and Australopithecines, et cetera, but then primates. And students really love primates. And of course, we get mostly, these are general ed courses, so students are in education, social work, communications, sci uh, biology, whatever. They really like the primate stuff, especially uh, the mothering behavior, the nurturing behavior. Uh, you know, we have a lot of females at uh, Etown College, and they seem to like that topic. So they're pretty much free to study whatever they want. But I will say, uh, Scott, that people tend to gravitate towards the apes because um, they look so much like humans. 
and um, in, in their behavior, their, their facial expressions, etc. And that's one of the things that Diane Fossey found out is she was criticized for not publishing more, but she took uh, 15 years before she felt she could understand them as individuals. These these animals are individuals, and um, you have to learn them. And the zookeepers that have had Harambe before said that they were uh, that he was very um, mischievous, uh, docile, and so um, you know I, I think that that people like watching them just because it's a a, a distant mirror, in in uh, Barbara, historian Barbara Tuckman's terms, a distant mirror into the human past, and. Um, it's funny because after being at the zoo so many times uh, with students, you start watching the people watching the primates. And some of the comments are funny. Um, you know, I remember one little girl saying, Mommy, that monkey, they tend to call the Small apes monkeys. monkeys. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mommy, that monkey picks its nose with the same finger we use. <laughs> <laughs> it's really funny to watch, watch people watching other apes. <laughs> but getting back to what I was asking earlier, yeah. though, what in particular are you, uh, are you and the students looking to study in the Zoo. It depends on their topic. They may uh, have a topic in, called um, uh, mothering behavior or diet or uh, dominance. Uh, again, uh, dom you know, gorillas are very dominant. Uh, the males are. So it really depends on them. They may look at the infants, but they tend to use, when you watch primates, you tend to use um, uh, focal analysis or focal study. You look at one animal and watch what, what other animals in that group do to it, and you, you try to focus on that rather than looking at every animal in the enclosure. Mm -hmm. So, and speaking of uh, Philly Zoo, you right. may remember this. I remember, um, yeah. It's a tragedy. Know, one of the one of the the things that's come out of uh, topics of discussion that's come out of here is if you're going to put an animal in a zoo, you have a responsibility to protect that animal. And we know that what happened in the Philly Zoo in the '90s. Uh, there was an electrical fire at night in the primate house, and it killed 23 primates, including, I believe it was 10 lowland gorillas, and it was devastating. They have a new primate house, and it's very, very uh, good. It's a very uh, good observation. Uh, back to the entertainment for a second. Um, the Philly Zoo uh, puts gibbons and orangutans together, and... That's something that wouldn't occur naturally in the wild. And they play tag and they throw toys in and they fight with each other, uh, you know, while hanging from the ceiling. Because, again, they're, they're strictly arboreal and they're 30 feet up. And it's just amazing to watch. But I'm not sure that has any educational value. It's more entertainment. Yeah. Well, hey, if you're going to pay the tuition yeah, that's you right. pay yeah, that's at right. college, you get some entertainment <laughs> from time to time. That's right. Is there a better way to study these animals other than a zoo? Well, again, with gorillas, uh, especially with the lowland gorillas, uh, they were very hard to study. And um, this Mbele uh, Bali um, study that's been going on since the uh, 90s uh, in Congo has really been a watershed for learning about the lowland gorillas. Um, the mountain gorillas are easier to see uh, because basically their environment is food. They eat grass, uh, you know, almost constantly. They like fruit, but they will eat grass constantly. And so the animals just basically wander through their the foliage, foliage eating. 
until they get full, and then they lay down, take a nap, and then they start eating again. So it's easy to see them, even though the term mountain gorillas. With the lowland gorillas, for a long time, they were very hard to see. So they started using trail studies, what are called trail studies, where you just kind of follow on a trail and see if you can find them. Then what they discovered uh, is that the lowland gorillas go to these swampy, open clearings and hang out there. They feed there, they get in the water there, they play there, and so they started watching these clearings only, and that's when they've learned about them. But again, 16 square miles, uh, unless you have a Jurassic Park uh, sort of deal where you're, you, know, you have these uh, SUVs and you're following the animals, how would you see them in the wild? I guess the best way to study them really is film. Mm. That's my guess. Uh, one final question: Your thoughts on the controversy since last weekend? Well, I don't. I just. I just plain am stunned by it. To be honest with you, um, I think the mother's reaction that's in the new video. She seems very calm. Uh, Mama loves you. She's saying and things like that. Um, I think I'd have climbed down if that was my three-year-old. That would have been a stupid thing to do, but, you know, the, the, the adrenaline gets going. I think I'd have, I'd, I'd have tried to do something. But uh, they didn't seem, she didn't seem to be that excited. And, of course, what we've seen is this just backlash towards the parent uh, because an animal was killed, um, kind of like the, the dentist from Minnesota right. who killed that lion. Yep. And, uh, you know, he getting death threats and things like that. Even a witness to what happened in Cincinnati posted on her Facebook got death threats. It's just outrageous uh, to me. Uh, what if that gorilla had gone crazy and killed that boy? Uh, uh, you know, then what would we be saying today? So I think it's a tough question. Fascinating conversation. Dr. Bob Wiersberg, a professor of anthropology at Elizabethtown College. Bob, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. June is National Dairy Month, with Pennsylvania producing more than 10.8 billion pounds of milk. Think about that, 10.8 billion pounds of milk, generating over $2.7 billion in revenue. It's a big deal here in Pennsylvania, speaking with us today about some of the month's events and initiatives, and there is a lot going on. Dave Smith, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Dairymen's Association. Dave, welcome back to the program. Hi, Scott. Great to be with you. Also joining us, uh, Jane Clement-Smith, Executive Director of Feeding Pennsylvania. Ms. Clement-Smith, thank you very much Good for morning. being with Good us. Good morning. Good to be here. And Jennifer Powell, who is Director of Development with the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. Ms. Powell, welcome to the program. Thank you. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. That's 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, uh, Dave. Smith, I'm going to start with you. Uh, June is uh, Dairy Month, National Dairy Month, and uh, as we have said in our promos, that it's kind of a big deal that uh, dairy gets its own month. And part of the reason is those numbers that I uh, read in our, in our introduction. But how big is dairy? How significant is dairy in Pennsylvania? Well, dairy is extremely significant in the agricultural community and as far as economic impact in this state. Uh, uh, Pennsylvania, although, you know, we don't rank uh, that high in in square miles uh, for the state area, uh, actually Pennsylvania is uh, ranks fifth in the nation for production of dairy. 
Uh, so that gives you a little idea of the volume and, and the dairy interest here in the area, and, and specifically right here in central Pennsylvania, between uh, the Lancaster, Berks, Lebanon, Franklin counties, we just have some huge dairy-producing areas, and uh, it, it's extremely important that we, we maintain and, and keep that infrastructure here uh, because of the population base that we have so close to us, uh, Philadelphia, New York City, and the eastern region. So. Uh, we're able to uh, supply a really fresh product to these urban areas in a, in a short period of time and have a, a real good locally produced product. Now, there are a lot of causes, uh, organizations that have special weeks or special months. But since dairy is so significant in Pennsylvania, and it's been around for a long time, so many people realize that it's important. But what message do you want to get out to Pennsylvanians and beyond uh, during this uh, during this month. Well, one of my messages is that uh, uh, we, we should not lose sight of, of the nutritional value of, of dairy products and the milk that uh, that is produced here. Uh, it, it's a very wholesome product. It provides a lot of a lot of uh, uh, nutrients plus proteins and. Uh, there's so many things in our diets, uh, but I think uh, we just need to maintain and, and keep in, in, in recognition that, that milk is, is a real basic component of our diets and needs to continue to be so. Mm -hmm. Plus the other thing, and I've been told many, many times by those in agriculture, especially uh, around farm show time, that there are so many people who just take milk and other agricultural products for granted. They go to the grocery store, they pick up their gallon of milk, but uh, no one thinks about it and think, where did that come from? Uh, you know, where, you know, who had the farm where this, this milk was produced? What happened to it since? That, you know, we're in such a situation now that we just take it for granted. Oh, I agree with that, Scott. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a dilemma that, that our, our, uh, our culture has, um, and it grows year to year because uh, our grandparents or our parents, uh, at that time, uh, we all had somebody that had some kind of connection with agriculture. Uh, today, with the, the shift in the population away from agriculture, uh, our, our farms are smaller and we have less people uh, involved in production agriculture. Uh, and because of that shift, people are less aware of, of how, how things are produced and, and uh, why uh, some of the activities around the farms are, are, are taking or, or why they are doing some of those things. So uh, sometimes, that, just like the, you mentioned the Pennsylvania Farm Show, uh, it, those things are very, very important to us in agriculture so that we can convey some message to uh, urban people that do not know, you know, how or, or where their milk comes from. In other words, and it's just not milk, it's, it's all the things that we eat. Uh, we really have to stress that uh, folks need to have some kind of understanding how that uh, food on your plate, in your table, gets to you and, 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 and some kind of uh, information about how much uh, of an infrastructure it takes to get that product to you also. Uh, one more question about uh, kind of like the status of dairy farming in Pennsylvania. Milk is a product that the price is regulated. Uh, so a lot of times the farmers themselves, their income can be limited by uh, by those those regulations. Um, I, I know that we often hear from dairy farmers who are saying that you know we we've got to have a little more money here because we're not making a whole lot of money. So what's the situation right now with uh, with the the price regulations, the price supports, and all that? 
Well, that's an interesting and a very complex situation, but uh, dairy farmers and farmers in general, uh, it's a very unusual situation that farmers are price takers instead of price setters. In other words, uh, our farmers and dairy farmers do not set the price of the product that they they sell. Um, they 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 get what somebody else is you know is going to give them, and somebody else sets the price. Um, we do go through some pretty huge swings in income on dairy farms uh, cycles. I'll call them through the years, and uh, sometimes these cycles will last four or five years, and there'll be some highs and some lows. Uh, right now in Pennsylvania, in fact, the world. Uh, we have milk prices which are, are lower than they have been for quite a few years. Uh, and, and many of those things um, are uh, um, done because of um, supply demand. Um, economic conditions around the world have a huge factor in what, uh, what the price of uh, milk uh, is for dairy farmers in Pennsylvania. So there's a very complex set of uh, situations and reasons uh, how how things are priced to the dairy farmers, and um, we do go through cycles uh, over uh, a number of four or five years. We have a lot to cover here in uh, our, our short time on the air today because it's not just talking about the status of dairy farming in Pennsylvania, talking about the animals and that kind of thing, but there are events scheduled during National, uh, National uh, Dairy Month. Uh, Let's go to uh, Jennifer Powell, who is the Director of Development for the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. Uh, last year, Jennifer, uh, the Food Bank launched Fill a Glass with Hope. It was launched in 2015, and now it is expanding statewide. First of all, what is Fill a Glass with Hope, and why is it expanding? So Fill a Glass with Hope is our charitable milk program. And it started because um, those in need were requesting three things, meat, produce, and milk. So the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank worked really hard to build the infrastructure and the cold chain and all of that to provide meat and produce, but it was really difficult with milk. Nobody, Why? Why? nobody wants day-old milk, or oh, nobody, okay. you know, all once right. milk's bad, milk is right. bad. Right. Right. So um, we really had to move to the next level and actually worked with the Department of Ag, the Dairymen's Associate Association, Mid Atlantic Dairy, and Central Pennsylvania Food Bank became the first charitable program to receive a milk subdealer's license. So talking about about all that regulation, we had wow, to go through subdealer's sub license. <laughs> <laughs> so we were able to actually purchase milk direct from the producer and make that milk available to those in need. So it was a lot of infrastructure and capacity. We even had to invest in refrigeration and coolers for our partners. We can have all the great refrigerated trucks and everything on site, but if you have a pantry or a church program and they don't have a cooler, we had to make sure that they were ready and equipped for it. So Fill a Glass with Hope then evolved because Central Pennsylvania is just a part of our state. And working with the Dairymen's Association and the Farm Show, which is a statewide, it's our state fair for, for goodness sakes, we turned to our state association, which is Feeding Pennsylvania, and um, the association members really wanted to make milk available to every Pennsylvanian in need. So how much milk are we talking about? So Central Pennsylvania Food Bank was able to announce that we uh, provided 1 million servings in December and are now actually uh, distributing about 1,600 quarts a day. 
and that's Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. Now with us going statewide and um, the event tomorrow that you'll hear more about, we're looking uh, to have all of our sister food banks and our state association to move to 2 million servings mm. statewide. But, you know, something you said is, is so important that uh, often when people are encouraged to donate, it's those uh, non-perishable canned items. It's not something that has a shelf like uh, like milk. Uh, Jane Clement Smith is executive director of Feeding Pennsylvania and just as uh, was just mentioned, Jennifer just mentioned that uh, you're a partner. Um, where do you come in into this? Sure. So Feeding Pennsylvania represents eight Feeding America food banks across the state. And so when Joe, Arthur and Jennifer piloted this at Central Pennsylvania Food Bank, we got together with the dairy partners last fall and said, why can't we make this move statewide? So like Jennifer had talked about, each of the food banks had become charitable milk sub-dealers to be able to purchase the milk at a reduced price and invest in all that infrastructure as well. So now we're proud to say that all eight food banks are charitable milk sub-dealers. And um, over the next year, they've each launched and are still launching their milk program in each of their areas. So all of them will be in town tomorrow to celebrate with us this Dairy Month and fill a glass with hope. All right, well, let's talk about that. I want to get back to... Uh, the uh, hungry in Pennsylvania, but the event itself, uh, what are we looking at? It's going to be at the state capitol tomorrow, but not in the rotunda where uh, many events occur. This is at Soldier's Grove, right behind the capitol, and uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, I'll answer that question, Scott. Uh, the Dairymen's Association partnered with another ag organization, Penn Ag Industries, and uh, we will uh, set up outside on, in Soldier's Grove, and uh, we're actually going to give away our uh, milkshakes that we produce at the Dairyman's at the Milkshake show, at the yeah. Farm Show. And we're going to give them away in honor of and celebration of uh, June is Dairy Month, but also as people come through the lines, we're going to uh, advocate for uh, the Feeding Pennsylvania uh, Fill a Glass with Hope campaign and also encourage people to, to drop in a donation also. Uh, so um, we're going to be there between 11 and 1 tomorrow. Um, it's pretty exciting. The weather looks great, and, and people really, yes. really come out and uh, enjoy enjoy uh, some good dairy products. So we're going to have some fun with it. Well, everyone, of course, uh, during uh, the, the farm show in January, looks forward to uh, uh, the milkshakes. But uh, this is kind of the, the, described as the farm show in June, isn't it? It is exactly. That's what we call it, farm show in June. And the milkshakes are there. And um, it, it's really important to us also, Scott, that, that we spread the word about the uh, the children and adults that are that are hungry. And the dairy farmers have really gotten behind this concept. And it's it's something that uh, has, has flown below the radar for, for quite a long time uh, that uh, our dairy farmers and, and, and our people uh, have not realized that there's a lot of people that don't have access to milk. So that's that's what we're trying to work at and, and trying to get uh, milk into the hands of children that need need milk. We're going to talk some more about that with Jane in just a moment. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. June is National Dairy Month. Joining us today with talking about uh, an event going on tomorrow at Soldiers Grove at uh, the state capitol where you could get uh, one of those famous milkshakes tomorrow between 11 and 1. Also uh, joining us is uh, Dave Smith, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Dairymen's Association, Jane Clement Smith, Executive Director of Feeding Pennsylvania, and Jennifer Powell, Director of Development for the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Jane, I wanted to, to, to 
follow up on what we were discussing earlier. You know, in this day and age, many people assume that everyone has food. Everyone has access to food. Everyone has access. Now, you know, Dave talked about not everyone having access to dairy products. But what is the reality in Pennsylvania today? So the reality is that one in seven or 1.76 million Pennsylvanians don't have access to enough nutritious food every day. Of those 1.76, a half a million of them are children. Mm. And so to put that into perspective, we use this a lot on the road, um, half a million children would be like filling Beaver Stadium five times. That's a lot of children that don't have access to three nutritious meals a day. And so as Jennifer said, our food banks um, have taken a different approach in not just trying to find ways to get them food, but let's also try to find ways to get them healthy food. Um, and, and so... I, I noticed you used the word nutritious. Nutritious, that's it's, right. That, I mean, is, is when you say have access to nutrition, food? Do they have access to what we consider food that's not very healthy for them? I think that that's part of it, is that, you know, um, we've, we've heard from people that, um, especially through our, um, some different veterans programs we have, that um, having food might be a can of tomato sauce. Oh. So you and I don't call that food. No. Um, so, so that's what we're talking about here. Um, so, so through Fill a Glass with Hope, um, you know, milk really is a staple of life. I mean, what kid doesn't want to have milk with their cereal or milk with their cookies? Um, you, you start as a baby, and, and throughout life, you can you can think back to many times with milk. So, so through this program, um, we need to raise money, and so a dollar equals eight servings of milk. And so, since inception of the program, this we've raised three hundred and seventy thousand dollars. And like Jennifer said, we have this goal of two million servings, and we're just not there yet. Um, We have raised um, over $195,000, but in order to get to that 2 million servings, we're going to need to raise $55,000 more by the end of this year. And so we're hoping that through awareness at this event, um, people can donate while they're there. um, We'll have uh, donation cans, but you can also go to feedingpa.org slash milk to donate to the Fill a Glass with Hope program, and you can designate your donation dollars to your local food bank on that website. Okay, so that's how to do it. Yes. So we encourage uh, uh, people to do that today. Uh, Jennifer, let's talk a little bit about uh, you know some of the, the events and some of the uh, uh, campaigns that the Central Pennsylvania Food Bank involved with. Uh, we talked about milk, we talked about uh, having access to milk, but there are also summer meals program uh, with school out, and there are many kids who, if it's their last day, it's not today or yesterday or last week, uh, it's coming up here in the very near future. There will be a lot of children across the state who will not have access to breakfast, to lunch, maybe even dinner, um, because they're not getting it in school. So that's where you come in. Absolutely. And, and if you just really take a moment and think about that, the millions of children that will not have access to the breakfast or the lunch program through schools, what are they going to do? Where are they going to go? Uh, so Central Pennsylvania Food Bank in particular has been working really, really hard to uh, meet that need. And this summer, we'll be working through 50 summer feeding sites and we'll be feeding 2,000 children a day through these sites all across central Pennsylvania. And it it just, 
it's astounding when we think about these statistics and we're talking about milk and we're talking about, you know, taking it for granted. You know, we really don't think about these types of things on a daily basis as we're running around and, you know, work and, and all of the other issues that we have to, to worry about. But children are not being fed. Uh, we're, we're taking um, advantage of nutritious food. You know, the, our food bank in particular has been going um, gangbusters in the sense that we really, it's not just about filling the belly. It is about feeding the person. And food is health. And uh, really talking about fresh product and fresh dairy and center of the, pre- center of the plate protein. So these, these children really, really have a rough time over the summer. So we're really working hard within each one of our communities within, within central Pennsylvania to have a site where kids can come, they can have snacks, they can have lunch, and some places can even have a dinner. Mm-hmm. Uh, how can they find out about those locations? So for Central Pennsylvania Food Bank that's um, here in um, this area, you would you can go to www.centralpafoodbank.org. Uh, you can call your local 211 literally just dial 211 on the phone and it will be able to direct you to summer feeding sites or places along um, within the area that you can um, find food and um, you can also give us a call at 717-564-1700 and uh, we have an interactive map that that we're able to uh, identify different places. Next year it's going to be an app but um, at this point we're still on um, (laughs) So you're planning that? I'm planning next year that you can just put in an app but but I appreciate you taking a moment because it is about children, it is about people in need even though the milkshakes are delicious um, that's just sort of a conduit to raising awareness about all these. It really is. I mean everyone focuses so much on the milkshakes and uh, I think there's a good reason to focus on it but, <laughs> but, but it, it, it reminded me Dave uh, about some of the other dairy products I mean okay Pennsylvania we ranked it in uh, dairy production what about cheese what about uh, like low fat ice cream I mean uh, is that part of the, all this too oh absolutely uh, there Pennsylvania ranks uh, at different levels for for the production of of those products. Uh, I do know that uh, Pennsylvania is a a large ice cream producer. We have some local businesses that are very well known that produce uh, huge amounts of ice cream that go all over the country with the the products made here in Pennsylvania. Uh, You know, you can go down the list. You got uh, a lot of our milk here is is going into a fluid milk uh, market. In other words, a gallon jug or a quart, uh, half gallon jug. Um, And then... uh, uh, there are cheese plants in Pennsylvania, uh, probably not quite as many cheese plants here as some other parts of the country, but uh, cheese production is also very, very, very important yeah, to the dairy industry and our consumers. Mm-hmm. We only have a minute left, and I want to make sure that uh, our listeners, if they're just tuning in, get to hear about the event tomorrow. Soldiers Grove at the state capitol, what can they see, what can they hear, what can they taste? Well, we're going to give away milkshakes, and we're promoting the Fill Glass with Hope campaign, asking for donations. Uh, the f- milkshakes are free between 11 to 1. Uh, we have a press event at noontime there where the lieutenant governor is going to come uh, give a proclamation for uh, June is Dairy Month. Uh, Secretary of Agriculture will be there and a number of legislators to help us celebrate. And there's entertainment as well. There is entertainment. Olivia, um, uh, 
She was on Fair the Voice. Yes, she made it Olivia to the Voice. Olivia yeah. made it to the Voice, and will be uh, providing entertainment tomorrow. Yeah. So it sounds like, and it sounds like a whole family event too. <laughs> that this isn't it just is. something for those who work in downtown Harrisburg or work at the at the Capitol. You know, come out, bring the kids, enjoy a milkshake, but uh, also uh, be thinking about Phil Glass with hope. And uh, I want to thank all three of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank Pleasure. you, Thanks Scott. for having us. And uh, I want to thank our guests uh, today. They are Dave Smith, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Dairymen's Association, Jane Clement Smith, Executive Director of Feeding PA, and Jennifer Powell, Director of Development for the Central PA Food Bank. Coming up on tomorrow's show, it is our annual show, Summer Reading Books for the Beach, that's coming up tomorrow.